0: Today, we bring you a special kind of episode of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fossbinder, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I launched The Morning Glory Project in October of 2019, before any of us heard the word coronavirus or pandemic, before we knew that we'd be struggling so as a nation, as a world, and Our goal was to share stories of determination, stories of people that had endured loss or hardship or trauma or abuse, failure, disappointment, but they'd somehow made it through the other side of that. And some of our stories are uplifting and fun, and some of them are more heartbreaking. But we believe that sharing these stories of determination, hearing what resources or ideas or decisions that people make to get them through, is how we can help listeners get through. Today's topic is not an easy one. It's the topic of suicide and suicide prevention. And I want to tell you that even though it's a difficult topic, these are truly inspiring stories that we're sharing today. And I share them because I am a suicide loss survivor. I have lost three beloved members of my family, three men in my family who took their lives. And I'm convinced that each and every one of them in one way or another felt that the world would be better off without them. And I can tell you that they were wrong. So I put this out for you if you are struggling with suicidal feelings or if someone you love is struggling and to hear the inspiring story of these two gentlemen, I believe can help. I also want you to know that there is a National Suicide Prevention Hotline. That number is 800-273-8255. I have this number in my wallet, in my phone, so that if I encounter anyone who's remotely feeling depressed and not telling, or telling me that they are that I can share that number with them. You don't have to be the solution for somebody. You can just be a resource and you can just be somebody that cares. So today we have two Kevins on board and one is Kevin Briggs and he is a retired California highway patrol sergeant who spent a decade patrolling the Golden Gate Bridge. He became a trained negotiator and handled four to six crisis calls a month on the bridge. And these challenging but rewarding experiences earned him the nickname The Guardian of the Golden Gate, and he wrote a book about that. Kevin brings a special brand of compassion, a lack of ego, and a kindness that's extraordinary. And late in this episode, you'll meet Kevin Berthea, And then in our part two, we're going to speak only with Kevin Berthea, so you'll hear more from him next episode. Kevin Berthea, at the age of 22 in 2005, found himself so desperate that he found his way to the Golden Gate Bridge, a bridge he'd never seen, a bridge he didn't know was a destination for suicide. But he knew he wanted to end his life, and he was indeed 220 feet from that death but somehow, <laughs> he grabbed the cable and he was holding on, and Kevin Briggs, this officer, uh, I don't usually like the term guardian angel, but he was somebody who was an angelic force there and was able to talk with Kevin and listen with him and inspire him to come back over that rail. And that's how he's here with us today, now a man of, in his 30s and raising his child. So, we're sharing both of these stories today and more from Kevin Berthia next week. I hope that you find the inspirational nuggets from these two inspiring men in the way that I have. Thanks for listening. Kevin Briggs, Kevin Berthia, thank you so much for joining me today. And I'll, I'll let you know, I'm going to use your last names uh, just to keep you straight. <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but I'm not scolding you. I know it's going to sound like a mom and you're in trouble. But if I use your middle names, you'll know you're really in trouble. Um, <laughs> so Kevin Briggs, uh, Sergeant Briggs, I guess I should say, tell me, you know, I'm guessing that when you went to the police academy, you never anticipated that this would be the course of your service. Can you tell me how it was that you ended up being the guardian of the Golden Gate?
1: Sure, Betsy. First, thank you for having me on. Kevin and I are thrilled to be here. Um, I started with the highway patrol in 1990. And um, I'm from Marin, and Marin connects to San Francisco via that Golden Gate Bridge. But I started out working. You have to go um, where the want is where they need officers. So they needed officers over in the East Bay at the time over by Oakland. And I worked in Hayward for a number of years before I was able to get back to Marin County where I live. And once I got back to Marin, uh, I started working on the bridge and I, I didn't have any seniority. Really, everybody else had a lot more seniority than I did. And I wondered why nobody wanted to work on the bridge for the most part. Well, I soon found out it's because of the number of folks contemplating suicide or folks that are actually, you know, going through with their suicide. Um, and and I had no training. We didn't train us in anything on how to negotiate with someone who was suicidal. Uh, it's better now. They do have some, some courses in the highway patrol. Um, and let me share numbers with you really, really quick. And just in 2021, there are still 25 confirmed suicides off of that bridge, and 198 interventions just around the Golden Gate Bridge area. Hmm. So that's a lot of folks who are suffering.
0: In one year, on one bridge.
1: Yes. So, you know, as a society, of course, in law enforcement, we have a lot of work to do in, in teaching negotiations with our officers. And I think nationwide and worldwide, it's getting better and better. But as a society, we have a lot of work to do still. I think the stigma surrounding suicide, you know, that that really discourages folks from coming out and talking what's going on with them.
0: The stigma about mental health in general.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Well, you know, I'll tell you Kevin, it, it it's always struck me as odd that we say someone commits suicide. You know, like you commit a crime, <laughs> you commit a felony. Right. It's it's like a it's an indictment of the person as opposed to somebody that is is tragically held by suicidal thoughts and the desperate. It doesn't speak to the desperation. It seems like that you're making making them criminal in a way, which is so strange.
1: You know, we, we hear that and I've done it and I actually said it during my TED talk of all times, but we don't mean any harm. And we are trying to get away from that. And I tell folks, we are trying to get away from the word commit. Oh, really?
0: Oh, so I, I'm not the only one that's sensitive yes, to
1: Yes, we are trying that. Um, it's it's a work in progress. People say <laughs> it. They don't mean anything negative by it. It's just been used for it's so habit. long. Yes. It's like you're committed to completing this project, whatever that may be, whether yeah. you're going through college or whatever else. Right. This just happens to take on a negative connotation. Right. So it is, like many other things, a work in progress.
0: So, Kevin, here you were. You inherited this post, and you're thinking, gee, how come nobody wants to work on this bridge every day? It's beautiful. It's some of the most exquisite and extraordinary scenery on the planet. People come from all over the world to see this bridge, and it. I have driven over it so many times I can't even count, and every time it's a wonder. But for you here, you inherited what seemed perhaps at first a plum assignment near your home and on this beautiful, iconic landmark. But then you discover that it's not that you discover that it's a suicide destination, if you will. And what was it like for you to to begin to enter that world? Like you said, without training and warning, really.
1: Right. It was it was very tough. To to put it lightly, to put it mildly, um, because I had no training. I didn't know what to say, how to act, how to approach these people. I'm thinking if they jump, am I in trouble? You know, all these things are going through my head. Uh, and it was terrible. I think it was very much a disservice to those folks who were contemplating suicide, wherever they were, be that on the sidewalk, over the rail, in the parking lots, but also to myself and the other people who would contact us because I I always say, uh, I'm not the only one doing this type of work. There are other people now, but you know, it, it hurt really.
0: Well, I would imagine it's a trauma for you. It is absolutely. So you didn't quit. No. Why not?
1: (laughs) What drove me to get further into negotiations was the look on people's face, the look in their eyes when I would look at them standing over that rail, I could see the vast majority wanted to live, but they didn't know how to get out of their situation.
0: Hmm.
1: And also when they would come back, because I will tell tell folks, if we get a chance to speak with people, most of the time they will come back over that rail. They're looking for somebody to listen to them. But the look in their eyes when they do come back. It's almost like a a little baby's eyes to where the innocence is there. Hmm. They're scared. They're excited to be here still. Um, Relieved. Yes. So that's what drove me to want to get into this. When you go into law enforcement, there's a lot of different options, whether you want to try, um, especially with the highway patrol, because throughout the whole state, we have planes, we have helicopters, we have uh, canines, you know, all sorts of different things. But after I started doing this type of work with people on the bridge, I knew this is something that really interests me that I want to dig my teeth into and, and see what I can do.
0: Well, so it's something you never aimed for, but you discovered a a passion, if you will, for this particular kind of work. And I'm wondering about you as a person, not as an officer, what do you think in your own experience made you somebody who could resonate with this work?
1: You know, I've had a lot of trauma in my life and I had uh, testicular cancer when I was 20 years old. It was stage four spreading throughout Mm. my body. I've had some head injuries. Um, My mother died from cancer when she was just 49 years old and watching her die in front of me and closing her eyes. um, I lost my grandfather to suicide a lot of different things. So and I'm still working on that. Um I just this past week had a stellate ganglion block. It's where they put injections in your neck and that's supposed to help with PTSD and images that we see. So I'm still going through a lot. I was diagnosed with major depression. Um went through some therapy, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, you know, all EMDR, these different things. For those yes. yes. So there's there's a lot of stuff out there, um, for people, but getting the opportunity and talking about that and seeing what's out there. So this, these are things that I like to talk about when I present.
0: You know, it's, it strikes, it may strike some as ironic that somebody who is helping other people to make a different choice than ending their life is somebody who has faced such trauma and loss and depression of his own. But to me, it's not ironic at all. To me, it's it's probably the bridge of compassion that you could you could recognize that relief in the eyes of those those who whom you help
1: you said that very very well that was fantastic and to know to wake up another day and i've been in in a, a number of surgeries including uh, three for my heart so to walk out of that hospital each and every time and to be able to look around and go wow there's a pigeon on the ground and it sounds ridiculous or funny or whatever but just to come out and see the blue sky and see the birds. It's, it's really something. And I think that's what folks experience when they come back over that rail. Mm -hmm. It's a new life, a new beginning.
0: Well, let's transition now because there was a day in, let's see, 2005 (laughs) where the two of you met. And so Kevin Briggs, I'm going to ask you to tell me first, and then we'll transition to, Kevin Berthea, what was your experience when you came upon Kevin Berthea? What did you see? What did you feel that day?
1: Uh, I was regular routine patrol on my motorcycle. And I was actually down in Sausalito having coffee at the time. And we get a call of a man standing on the sidewalk, talking on a cell phone, saying that he's going to jump off the bridge. I head up that way. And I start working my way down the sidewalk on my motorcycle, going from north to south, so heading towards San Francisco. And as I neared the north tower, I see the description of the man still on the cell phone. Uh, I stop my motorcycle about 50 feet away or so. And as I'm getting off of my bike, Kevin looks my direction, or what appears to me to look my direction, and he runs over and jumps over this pedestrian rail. Now, when he did that, I yelled out something to him, and I can't remember what it was, but he reached out, grabbed the rail, swung around, slammed into it and If you see this rail, folks who see this picture, imagine slamming into this at full speed, you know it's the bridges are very cold places for the most part, and you know this heavy duty steel, this iron, he just slammed into it. I thought he was gone. I thought there he is, two hundred and twenty feet down. And this is what I'm going to see. But when I got up to the rail, I saw his white T-shirt um, through the, the, mark, the markers on the rail there. And I go, oh, my God, he's still here. So then I did my typical of what I've learned to do or what I like to do is I stay back a ways. And I raised my right hand open-handed and I said, hi, I'm Kevin. Is it okay if I come up and talk with you for a while? And he wanted nothing to do with me. He was very, very angry. And he kept telling me, if you come one step closer, I'm jumping. And he just kept repeating that. He was very angry. And he kept looking around to see if somebody else was coming around the sides of him. But most of his attention was spent on me. Uh, And that's where we stayed for a while.
0: so Kevin Briggs, I want to explain to those that that don't know the the uh, structure itself of the bridge, so Kevin Berthia went over the side of the rail there's a uh, he was then below where where the the road where the cars go. he's kind of on the on the bridge but below kind of under the edge of the bridge, and you could just barely see him over that over that yes. bridge right.
1: There is a, like an I-beam that parallels the bridge, but around the two towers is the very, very small pipe. And, uh, you know, God only knows how he did it, but he landed on this pipe. And what you don't see in the picture, if folks get a chance to see this picture, is what's below the pipe. There is nothing. It's air, 220 feet down to the water. So
0: that's it. I try to imagine, I try to imagine on your side of it, Kevin Briggs, Your heart must have just been pounding. It was. How do you calm yourself enough to focus in that moment?
1: You know, I say a little prayer when I'm coming up to these, and then I try to do some heavy breathing if I can think about it, because I'm also trying to think of what I'm going to say and how am I going to react. Sure. And is it me that they'll even chat with? As a negotiator, you need to know and realize if I'm not making a connection, I want to get somebody else in. I I tell folks and I teach negotiators, this, this is not the Kevin Briggs show. It's about those individuals who we're speaking to. So I'm trying to finagle all this in my mind. So you're
0: assessing too. Yes. So it's also interesting that you introduced yourself as Kevin, not as officer Briggs, not as Sergeant Briggs, just as Kevin.
1: What I'm trying to do with that is personalize things. And I'll start with me. You know, my name's Kevin. It's, I am. I think just coming up and walking all the way up there and not even introduce myself at all, or, which I've seen happen, or I am Sergeant Kevin Richard Briggs, California Highway Patrol. I'm thinking in my mind, if I'm in Kevin Berthea's situation, who cares? Does he even see a guy dressed in a uniform? What is he seeing? I think they have so many things going through their head. If I can just tell them my first name and try to personalize it, and then if they allow me to use their first name, We're starting this off on a good note.
0: Well, it's about making that human connection, isn't it? Outside of your roles and your stations.
1: We can leave any kind of, you can leave the black, white thing out of it. You know, everything else, gender, whatever it is, you can leave the highway patrol out of it. It's just two people talking.
0: So Kevin Berthea, tell me if you will, first of all, I just want to say, I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) I'm so glad that you climbed back over that rail. I appreciate that. So, so it's beautiful because we know the happy ending of this story. Um, but can you tell me, first of all, what was it like to, for you to encounter Kevin, that first moment?
2: I was angry, uh, to be honest, um, because I, I I'd come near to do, you know, get myself out of pain. Um, you know, I just, I, I, I had exhausted all the, Ideas of of trying to you know talk about this at this point, and that was my last hope. Like you know, I was just get into that water, and he and he, he stopped me. So initially, I was I was probably more angry than I've ever been in my life.
0: Hmm. Which is it's so funny because I would guess that most people wouldn't think what they would encounter in you is anger, but it would be more like fear or sadness or sorrow, but. They say that anger turned inward as depression and maybe depression and sadness turned outward as anger. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. So here you are. You see this hand. Do you see his hand come over the bridge?
2: No. I mean, I don't I don't really. My mind is so all over the place because I had, you know, a couple of seconds before even, you know, getting interrupted. I was bracing myself. For imp- like I knew it came a piece over my heart because I knew that it was over. Like I w- it was over for me to. Like I, w- I was done with feeling like a burden. I was done with waking up, feeling worthless. I was like I was done. So I was completely just exhausted and and just thinking like, OK, it's done. So knowing that I'm on a ledge and I'm half of me knows I'm on a ledge, half of me knows everything going on around. And it's just it's so overwhelming for me because I, this is not how I planned it to be. I didn't drive to the Golden Gate Bridge to get on a ledge and, and have a conversation. Like I drove to the Gate <laughs> bridge to jump off of it. Like it was never in my wildest of imagination in my wildest of wildest of imaginations, what I have thought that I would put myself in that position. Um, for one, I'm scared of heights for two. I hate being cold. So I'm never going to put myself, you know, in that type of situation because you know, it's 220 feet in the air and it's, you know, a 40 degree wind chill. It's San Francisco, you know, San Francisco It's just, I got a t-shirt on and there's some shorts so everything in my brain is just I'm angry, I'm frustrated, and I'm just overwhelmed at this point.
0: And so you leapt over the bridge, but something made you grab that one cable.
2: It was just something I, I was I was he distract something that he said. And I don't even know what he said, but it was enough to distract me from the place that I was in. And and I am only reason why I'm alive today is because of that voice and me being as athletic as I am. Growing up, you know, I've been dunking the basketball since i have ninth grade. So that was the only thing that helped me in that position because, you know, there's no way I don't even know how I did it. Like, to be honest with you, his
0: voice and your quick
2: reflexes. And exactly. That's all it was. If you tell us to do it again, we would never be able to do it. I'd be in the water a million times over a million times because it just you can't. It's one of those things you can't reenact. It's just it just it was spurred a moment, like literally in that moment. You know, I grabbed the railing and I, like you said, I I remember being, I remember slamming myself. And so now I'm really mad at myself because I'm cold. My chest is hurting. My arms are hurting. Like, you know, so it's just, I have all these different emotions going on me. And then, and then the fact that I'm still alive.
0: And so, so I want to go back to one, one thing that you said, which was that you were prepared and what you were there is you were there to get out of pain. Mm -hmm. You were ready for the pain to stop.
2: Absolutely. Period. I felt like I, you know, I've done enough. I've I've spent, you know, tw- up to this point, I spent twenty two years of my life trying to figure it out, and I never could figure out how to not wake up and not want not want to die. I couldn't figure out how to not look into the mirror and hate what I see, hate hate the image that I see. So I couldn't figure it out, and I always felt like this is how my life was going to be. I can't spend another twenty two years like like I just I just didn't see I can't spend another day like this. So I was prepared to just for that part, because I didn't see another option. I didn't see if I, if I had another option, it would be different, but I didn't see any other option that day.
0: You know, it's funny. I've had suicide loss in my own family, uh, tragically, and, and other loved ones as well. And I often tell people that, that don't, aren't around suicide and don't understand it. Because they, they, I've heard people say, oh, it's so selfish, suicide. Mm. You know, oh, it's weak or, you know, it takes courage to live on and all those things. And I, and I always tell people, you know, I'd like you just to close your eyes and I'd like you to think of your worst day, the worst day in your life, the worst you've ever felt. Just linger there for a minute. And what if I told you that you had to feel that way every day, all the time, without any idea that it was ever going to get any better?
2: That's exactly what it's like. And that's what exactly what people, that dark place is real. And I think that we overlook it and and, and we shadow it because we don't, we, we you know, we, we don't really know exactly what it is because a lot of us haven't experienced it. That is a, the greatest analogy you can give someone is is a, just imagine that. Just imagine that you don't see a way out of your pain. And that's what a lot of uh, individuals like myself are up against. We don't see a better tomorrow, you know, we we, we don't feel, we don't feel the love of our loved ones, you know, we know, you know, yeah, we can know we love, but once we go inside of ourselves and we're inside of our head and our side of our own feelings, we're dealing with all the stuff we put there over the years and we can't feel, you know, outward love because if we haven't deposited enough inward love over the years, then we're not going to feel that once we go inside of our head.
0: (sighs) Outward love, inward love. So Kevin Berthea, there you are. You're under the bridge. You can't see Kevin. D- Are you aware that he's a police officer?
2: Absolutely not. Um, I, I never, and I always will say this because, you know, I, I'm born and raised in Oakland, California. So my idea of, of, of law enforcement was a lot different when I was on that bridge compared to how it is today. So if I would have probably opened my eyes and kind of knew exactly that I was talking to a police officer, it would have changed the the, the, con- the complete conversation would have changed.
0: So you were a young black Man from Oakland mm-hmm. on the edge of a bridge with a with a white officer. Your history with law enforcement at that moment, or your impression of law enforcement, wasn't so positive. So, had you been able to see him, we might not be talking today. No,
2: no, I, I guarantee you. If I would have known who he was, just to, just to, the where I was at in that place where I was at, I went, We would not be here talking. Absolutely
1: mm-hmm. not.
0: So how long did this, Kevin Briggs, how long did this conversation go on?
1: This went on for about an hour and a half. Wow. With Kev talking the vast majority of the time, which is perfect as a so-called negotiator, this is what we want. It allows them to vent. It allows me to gather information. So, you know, in this world of negotiations, uh, this is a, a great setup when you have someone who's willing to talk.
0: And what was he saying? Uh,
1: he ran me through his life, like Kevin's explained a little bit, but all the things that he had been involved with, all the sports, all the downs that he had been going through and that he was adopted, what his birth mother you know, didn't really want him in her life, uh, his adopted parents getting a divorce, having a child, And that child having to spend time in the hospital. So all these different things. Uh, And then he would take a little break and we'd sit there a few minutes. And um, I did not say things like, well, you know, things will get better. Things can get better and all this. I would much rather have silence than somebody saying that because we don't know that. Mm. So many, many times I just sat there, and just would let him look around, take some time you know, and breathe and just kind of take in this moment. So I wanted to let him know that I was there for him not to change anything.
0: It really strikes me as something that's counterintuitive for most people. I think that most people want to talk people out of their sadness. You know, it's going to get better things. All you need is a better perspective, all those things. And you're just saying, you know, it it sounds to me like what you were saying is that the human connection and letting him, be heard. Whatever the raw and ugly and dark feelings he was feelings was feeling was what was important
1: for that time. Yes, and anybody who's c- having this crisis conversation, one of my biggest things is don't try to fix anything because m- most of the time we can't. So, you know, just to be there. Um, and there's some things that I avoid some some verbiage, and it's you should calm down. I understand, and things will get better. I avoid those.
0: Even I understand.
1: Yes, because I don't understand what they're going through. Now, I told you a little bit about my history. There's, there's a lot of things there, but I generally don't talk about my history because, like I said before, this is not the Kevin Briggs show. I want to learn about them. And many times I think if you start comparing situations, the person on the other side of that thinks that you're diminishing what they are going through. Mm. So
0: this isn't about ego. No,
1: you got to let that ego go.
0: Hmm. Kevin Berthea, what was your experience of being heard in that moment?
2: Life change, um, as you can see. I mean, you know, the proof is I'm here. I mean, it's I've never been heard in my life. Um, I've never had a situation in my life. This is the first time in my life that I actually opened up. Um, it's just it's critical that it just took to a bridge and, and I'm over a ledge, but that literally was, you know, I'm, I, I got, I'm stubborn, you know, that's just how I am. Um, I've been to myself all these years and that was literally the first time that anybody heard, he learned stuff that day that nobody in the world knew. Hmm. Like, that's just how, that's just how it was. I mean, it's just the reality of I've never opened up. So I've, so I've never been heard and getting no things out. It's just, I felt weights being lifted from me as, as, as it came out.
0: Well, you know, what touches me about that is how simple it is to just let someone be heard and how, and yet how you'd gone all that time without ever having that. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but you go, you, you come from a culture, you know, I come from a, you know, a culture who we don't, we don't address issues. We don't talk about issues. We don't, we don't talk about feelings. We don't talk about emotions. So, you know, when you, when you combat that with, with with what I actually have to feel on top of what I have to, the environment I have to be around, it's going to keep me, you know, to myself. And I, that, it was just easier to always be to myself um, for all those years. But, you know, like I say, it just, it, it builds up and, you know, you get to a point where it gets overwhelming. And that's where I was at that day.
0: Well, you know, in addition to culture, and and I don't want to generalize too much, but I also want to say, though, that in addition to culture, there's also the issue of gender. Mm -hmm. And my experience is that men more often don't talk to somebody. Mm
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we're not, we're not trained to, I mean, we don't, we don't have, you're trained not to, we're trained not to, we're trained to figure it out. We're trained to be the, the, you know, the, the protectors and the providers. And, you know, nobody ever really checks on us because we're, we're expected to have it all together. That's just the, that's just how man, mankind, how how it's always been. So,
0: well, worse than that, it's, you know, don't be a baby. Don't, mm -hmm. you know, be a man, be tough, be strong, big, you know, strong guys don't cry, all of that stuff.
2: It's almost like we can't be human. Um, it's, like, it's like men can't be human. Boys grow up and they, they become superheroes too early in life because they can't show emotions. They can't they can't tap into those inner feelings that we all have. We as humans all have the same amount of feelings. And I don't think that as a man, I'm, I should not be able to cry because that's considered a woman thing. I mean, it's considered a human
0: thing. It's an emotion. Interesting that superheroes wear masks, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> so, Kevin Berthea, what was it? that finally an hour and a half later got you to crawl back up, to reach back up? And how did you do that just mechanically?
2: <laughs> I think that um, getting all that stuff out and truth be told, it was one thing that got me over that ledge and it was going to be one thing that bring me back. How I felt as, as being a failure as a father, um, you know, I've been adopted my whole life. Um, so I, I always hated the feeling of it. I always hate all the thing, all the problems that I had in my life were were always there, and I always felt like I always been my own motivational speaker. But this new added issue of being a new father and taking on the responsibility of having somebody else that it just it just was overwhelming. I mean, her mom wasn't on the best to on the best to you know to have the best situation, so we argued a lot. So it was just it was just overwhelming for me. So him, he made me realize that I need to be, I'll never forget this. He made me realize I need to be here for her first birthday. I went to the bridge March 11, 2005. My daughter's first birthday was April 6th and I would have missed her first birthday. And because mm. he made me realize the importance of that, I need to be there for her. It made me, you know, realize that I, I can give it another chance. I mean, I still had to make a decision because, you know, i said I unloaded all this stuff. And in my brain, I knew that I had to face all these things, you know, I didn't know how big, I didn't know I was gonna be front page of the paper. I didn't know all these different things, but I knew I was gonna to have to face something. And so I still had to make a conscious decision to come back. But, you know, I made that decision. Um, you know, to myself, I closed my you know, I had my eyes closed and I just thought within myself and I like to see was her face. And that was the re- you know, I was, you know, able to lift my arms up and I remember um both two officers um uh, well two people. Cause I didn't even really, I realized it was officers. I never, cause I, I kept my, I was completely out of it. I remember putting my arms up. I remember getting pulled up and I remember somebody putting my t-shirt over my face. Cause they was, you know, people were taking all these pictures and all these things. And I, you know, I remember getting into the, to, to the, to the car and I remember them saying, you know, he, I remember as soon as I came up, I remember bricks asking me, he said, well, what did I do? Um, you know, he says something like, "What did I do?" And I said that that made you come back. And he said, "I said you just listened." I just remember that. I just remember telling him you just listened. Um, and that that was, you know, that's all I can remember. Um, I remember going into a car, and then I remember being at San Francisco General after that. And after after thing, everything after that is like a blur.
0: And Kevin Briggs, what's that moment like for you?
1: It's fantastic. It's, it's a win for him. You know, I'm kind of on the sidelines um, to see the look in their eyes. And when he came over, it's exactly what happened. There happened to be a lot of pedestrians in the area that day. And I think they were having a meeting at the Golden Gate Bridge that day on putting up the suicide barrier. So now we had a helicopter out. There was press around. So we keep the pedestrians back. You know, we try to shoot for like 150 feet or something like that on that walkway during the time. So when he came back, I congratulated him. Uh, we spoke for a little bit and then he did go in the car down to, to SF general. So it's a big relief for us. Um, it really is.
0: You must've been exhausted.
1: It does. It takes a lot out of you. It really does. If you care, you know, if you have the empathy, which, of course, we do or we wouldn't be doing this on the bridge like this. Uh, it does take a lot out of you. But I can only imagine what it does for the individual on the other side of this that we're speaking.
0: Multiples of that exhaustion. Yes. Yeah. Well, so, Kevin Briggs, first of all, I want to thank you for the kind of service that you provide and, and provided all those years. And now I know that you you speak to community groups to in the area of prevention and education around these matters. So your work continues to reverberate. I'm so pleased that you found ways to take care of yourself during this because while we can be a wounded warrior, (laughs) a, a wounded healer, if you will, those wounds need to be tended to. And so I'm so, so, so pleased that you are taking care of yourself. Kevin Berthea, like I said, I'm just glad you're here and that you are turning this moment into something more. You and I are going to have a subsequent conversation for a following episode about more of what you do. And, and I want to thank you for that in advance. But meanwhile, I just want to thank the double Kevins here for being part of the Morning Glory Project and for sharing your story with us today. Thank you both.
1: Well, thank you, Betsy. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much.
0: When I think of my conversation with Kevin Briggs and Kevin Berthea, I just think so much about what Kevin Briggs said about how when he was trying to help this young man, he couldn't see him, he didn't know who he was, what he looked like, anything. And Kevin Berthea did not know the man above him talking to him was... A police officer and a white man, and all of those things, and how those barriers became nothing. And that what Kevin Briggs said that was the most important thing that really sticks in my brain is that when this young man was talking and telling his story for an hour and a half in the freezing cold of Golden Gate Bridge, hanging on to a cable, that between when he would sort of stop talking, I think lots of us might be tempted to chime in and reassure and tell somebody it's going to be okay, tell them we understand, tell them it's going to get better. But Kevin Briggs said that what he gave him was silence. How hard must that be? How many of us feel like we have to rush into that silence and reassure and comfort and provide inspiration and all of those things. And there's nothing evil about that desire, but it's not always helpful that what somebody who's in pain and vulnerable and even suicidal really needs is to be heard, to be listened to, to know that somebody is there and cares enough to hear. I wonder, oh, I wonder how many people might still be here. How much pain might be vanquished how much agony might be soothed if each and every one of us just simply had somebody who is willing to listen if you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal feelings please know that there is help available the national suicide prevention hotline is available 24/7 365 in all kinds of languages at 800 273 8 800 273 8255. You can even text that number as well. If you're not comfortable speaking, you can. I know that lots of folks feel more comfortable with the anonymity of chat. That's something you can do as well. Just know that there are people that care and that you matter. And that if you feel like the world would be better off without you, let me tell you, as someone who has lost three men in my family to suicide, I can tell you that the world is not better off without you. You matter. Blessings to you, and I hope that wherever you are, that that is a seed that will grow and that you will find a way to bloom.